Welcome to the podcast of ideas. The recording you're about to hear took place on Wednesday the 10th of June and is one in the Economy Forum's series of discussions on the effect COVID-19 is having on the world economy. In this discussion, the Economy Forum looks at the oil industry. Economy Forum, I'm Rob Lyons, I'm the convener of the forum and I'll be chairing tonight's discussion on COVID-19 and its effects on the oil industry. Um, I was just reading the Guardian's report on the news that BP is to cut 10,000 jobs worldwide and I thought it was a very useful microcosm of the problems facing the industry today. So according to this report, at the start of uh, this year, the price of Brent crude was around $65 a barrel. But at one point in April, it fell to $16 per barrel. And there was a point where prices went negative in daily trading. So people were basically trying to pay somebody to store their oil or take their oil off the hands. Um, now, prices have rebounded since then. And I'm sure our speaker will go into all the, the reasons for that. Uh, but the, the losses have been enormous. So BP's chief executive, Bernard Looney, said that the BP had lost almost $5 billion this year. And he added that he's more convinced than ever that the company had to embrace the energy transition, arguing the pandemic only adds to the challenge that already exists for oil in the medium to long term. So while BP continues to flirt with going beyond petroleum, what has been the overall impact on the industry? Can it recover? What are the wider ramifications of, for example, the downturn in US shale oil production? And is oil really doomed? What's it mean for the wider uh, picture in terms of uh, commodities. So there's lots of, to talk about tonight. Just before I introduce our speaker, um, a quick word from our sponsors. The Academy of Ideas is continuing to work throughout the crisis. No staff have been furloughed. In fact, we're working harder than ever. All our online events during this crisis will be free and available to anybody with the means to log on. We'd be really grateful if you could consider giving us your financial support, if you haven't already. Um, if you would like to make a donation, small or large, go to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. So over to our speaker tonight, it's Robert Fig. He's a seasoned commodity risk practitioner. He's a principal at Metals Risk Team, which is a commodity risk management consultancy, and he's previously, previously worked for ArcelorMittal and for London Metals Exchange. So Rob's gonna talk for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then I'll open up the floor to discussion. So hopefully I can find Rob to un unmute you. There we go. Uh, are you unmuted yourself? Have you, Rob? Yeah. Excellent. Right. So I've spotlighted you and the floor is yours. Away you go. Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, thanks, Rob, for the introduction. Um, what I'm going to do is to talk uh, for about 20 minutes on uh, what happened, what's, hap what's been happening in the energy markets uh, over the last three or four months just to kind of situate this uh, discussion and then to have a look at the wider global economy uh, and to see what impacts these could have, these events could have on, um, on, on um, uh, recovery and uh, the future for the world economy. From January, when oil was trading at uh, $65 um, in America, the contract there is called West Texas Intermediate. It's an oil-based uh, contract that is traded out of uh, the New York Mercantile Exchange, and um, it is based on physical delivery um, in a place called Cushing, um, Oklahoma. 
So oil was trading merrily at $67 a barrel. Um, the world production of oil at that time was 100 million barrels per day. Uh, that is consumption. And 99 million barrels a day is produced, was produced. So we had a slight shortage of oil um, going through the first, uh, through January and February. What happened then was the Russians and the Saudi Arabians entered into a price war by flooding the market with oil. The idea behind this was to remove some of the marginal producers who uh, produce at a much higher level. We're talking particularly about the United States where shale gas uh, and shale oil um, means that a barrel costs them about 60 to $65 a barrel. By pushing down the price of oil, by flooding the market, they um, would, were attempting to, dr to drive the Americans out of the market. Over the last five years, America has become self-sufficient in oil. And um, one, one of the consequences of this was that prices dropped first down to the low 50s and by March to $23 a barrel. Uh, come along uh, COVID, um, where um, this 100 million uh, barrels per day uh, looked very optimistic and in actual fact, consumption dropped to below 70 million barrels a day. So there was a huge drawdown in, uh, in, in production, in, in consumption of oil, while production continued at the same level. And what happened in uh, April, um, culminating um, on the 20th of April, was, which was a pretty historic day for the oil markets, when the WTI May contract ended um, at minus $37 a barrel. Minus the, that's the first time that that has ever happened um, to a market where it had entered into negative territory. Now, to explain negative uh, pricing, um, just think about you've got a piece of furniture that you want to sell on eBay. Uh, you, um, you advertise it, nobody's interested. And what you have to do eventually is to get to pay the council to come along and take away your piece of furniture, despite the fact that you think it has some value. In this instance, uh, prices started declining very rapidly um, and the storage of oil was filling up all over the world, not just in Cushing, Oklahoma, but all over the world. What ha um, happened here was that there were a uh, large number of, uh, uh, one of the things about um, West Texas Intermediate is it uh, tends to be what's called a, um, a financial market. It's not um, a market where people tend to go to manage their risks through hedging. They would tend to use the Brent contract, which is pretty similar, uh, traded here in London on the International Commodity Exchange. Um, the WTI contract tends uh, to attract the financial markets and the retail markets through what are called ETFs or exchange traded uh, futures contracts, which mimic the price of oil. 
And so what you had are these um, huge retail funds that were what we call long of oil. They had bought forward uh, their oil contracts. And for them, uh, those invested in these markets, the price uh, went against them and it started falling and falling and falling and eventually entering into negative territory. And um, that means that they have to buy back their contract um, at, at much lower prices. The consequence of this is on the, on the NYMEX contract, the WTI contract, you have to take physical delivery of that oil if you, you cannot settle financially. And the problem is that storage um, in Cushing was basically full. And so people had to close their position out at whatever price they could, leading uh, to that negative pricing. Um, so people can't, uh, you can't just uh, let your physical, your futures contract uh, expire without closing it out. You have to close it out prior to uh, moving your position to another date or rolling your position forward, as we call it. Uh, and when they did that, unfortunately, uh, they first of all got, they lost money by, let's say they sold the May contract in January at, at $70 or $65, and it had gone to minus 37, they'd basically lost $90 per barrel. Um, and um, they then had to roll their position forward because these are long-term funds. And so what they did was they rolled their position into the June contract. And the June contract was trading at a much higher level. So they sold at a loss, and then they had to buy at a higher price in the future. So they get, got hit on a double whammy. On the one side, they lost money on their original trade. And in the second case where they rolled their position forward, they also got hit on that. And that, um, what we call the, the, the price differential between today and tomorrow is called a contango. If, if the low price today is lower than tomorrow, that's called a contango. And they got hit on that as well. So what we've got is this market where prices have absolutely collapsed on oil. They had gone long and lost money on that. They'd lost basically a $100 on oil. Um, and they got hit on the, uh, on the contango. They got hit on every, every side of that trade. Um, obviously, the move by the Russians and the Saudis backfired. It backfired on them because um, what we saw was a huge glut of oil developing on the international markets. And what happened there was that they met on a number of occasions to try and um, cut oil production globally. And they originally decided they were going to cut about 9 million uh, barrels a day, 9.7 million barrels a day, um, which uh, unfortunately for them didn't really work very well. Um, most, most countries in OPEC or OPEC plus uh, produced um, much more oil than uh, the cuts recommended. And as a consequence, oil remained um, very, very weak. 
and there is there are huge stocks of oil all over the world. For example, when uh, Cushing uh, filled up, what we saw was um, the oil industry uh, chartering large numbers of ships around the world, 700 oil tankers, and filling those oil tankers up because they couldn't find land-based uh, um, land uh, storage. And one of the consequences of that is that it just meant that there was this huge glut of material all over the world. Now, Saudi Arabia may produce oil at maybe five or six dollars a barrel. Russia produces it at about uh, $30 a barrel. Um, but that's not the end of the story because these countries are incredibly indebted. And actually what happens is to balance their budgets, their actual cost of production uh, rises very substantially. So many countries, uh, both within OPEC and outside of OPEC, have been producing oil um, at below the cost of production and they've been losing money. And this has uh, been exacerbated by all sorts of other problems. One, banks are not willing to lend money to them because the oil price is extremely low and they hadn't protected themselves through hedging. Um, uh, only 77% uh, of the cuts were actually implemented. A number of countries refused to do it. Um, and even Saudi Arabia and Russia didn't meet their requirements. And this failure of OPEC uh, plus to extend this cut, these cuts basically failed. And we saw a meeting of OPEC this weekend on the 10th, where they decided that what they were going to do was to extend the cut phase to the end of July. But it's, you know, they have no um, they have no way of, of enforcing any decisions, and I think that compliance is going to be very low. Um, so uh, there, there's, there's a problem there that I think uh, um, will, will, will be with us for some time. Um, so negative pricing. Negative pricing is not new to the world economy. If you think about uh, uh, Japanese interest rates, they have been below zero for some time. Um, that has now been extended to many other countries. And we see countries like Switzerland, Canada, Germany, uh, and Sweden in particular, uh, having negative interest rates. Um, the United Kingdom has uh, recently launched a, a bond below uh, zero. So, um, we see uh, a large number of interest rates uh, which operate well below, the, 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 below zero. We also see lots of energy contracts, um, oil, natural gas, electricity, uh, and the like, also operating below the cost of production. This happens when, for example, more electricity is produced than is required. There's no such thing as being able to store electricity, so it's uh, dissipated. Um, and the same can be said with natural gas. You can't just um, shut down a, a well or a, a gas well um, because the, 
the problem is it costs you enormous amounts to uh, relaunch it, and very often uh, um, it it ends in disaster, and you can no longer uh, relaunch these problems. These um, these these uh, um, these gas uh, gas or oil wells. Um, so. And, um, Negative pricing is nothing new to the world economy, um, but it's combined with a number of issues uh, that um, I think pose real issues for um, the global economy. I think um, the fact that banks are now uh, exiting the market and are no longer prepared to lend to companies who are producing below the cost of production, why would they? Um, and um, banks who are um, who are constrained by uh, Basel one, two, three, and four, where they have to have uh, enormous capital adequacy set aside to back up every trade. I think it has frightened a lot of banks out of the sector, and I think one of the consequences of this is that we are likely um, to see closures um, of wells in the Gulf of Mexico. In, um, in, in Algeria, in Iran, uh, in, 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 in the United States and Canada. Um, so we, we are likely to see um, some uh, shut-ins, as they are called, um, where closures will uh, become permanent. So banks are, bank lending is disappearing fast. Um, we, we're seeing a number of shut-ins taking place around the world. Um, we're seeing global potential um, trade wars occurring where the United States will not uh, allow its, its uh, um, self-sufficiency uh, self in oil to be challenged. And I think that we will see duties imposed on uh, non-US imports into the United States. And the consequence of this is we are likely to soon to see uh, relatively strong inflation reappearing as commodity prices eventually rise. Um, we're also seeing a lot of talk about um, shortening of the supply chains and reshoring of uh, industrial production uh, to the major economies. And I think that's partly a result of the banks refusing to lend to these sectors at this stage and uh, because of uh, low prices and because we're talking about very old technologies here, um, I think um, that will lead to uh, some kind of uh, shorter supply chain um, event taking place. So um, I'm concerned that I've, I've sort of been um, talking for a while um, and I don't want to uh, hog the discussion. Um, but what what will this oil, uh, what is likely to occur is that we are likely to see um, a continued glut of oil for some considerable time. Uh, we are likely to see when there's a huge stock of oil, what tends to happen is that um, the refineries take that oil and turn it into distillates of various kinds like um, uh, uh, aviation gas or uh, heavy fuel oils or, or whatever, diesel. And of course, that demand has also collapsed. Um, and so um, they need to store that clean material somewhere. And that adds to the 
uh, glut of material that exists at the moment. So until there are shut-ins, until there are permanent closures, um, I, I suspect that the oil market uh, is likely to um, remain in a, a very difficult situation. Okay, uh, bro, okay. Got, sorry, I thought you finished. No, no, done. All right, brilliant. Okay, can I just ask you one question before I, I, I go out to the audience? Um, is just just as an initial comment, one of the things that's uh, been happening, maybe it's just in the pages of the Guardian or something, I don't know, is this idea, of, uh, yeah, but also re referencing that Bernard Looney quote I, I said earlier about whether this is yeah this is great news for new renewables or something. Do you get, do you get that sense that the, that that this is going to uh, help the shift towards renewable energy? Um, okay, no. Um, Eighty-five percent of all energy produced today is through fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas, uh, and various other gases. Uh, very small quantity is um, in renewables, um, and that includes hydro. So you've got hydro, you've got wind, you've got solar, um, and, and biomass of some description represents about four or five percent of global, um, global production. So uh, we're, we're a long way off from uh, uh, moving away from fossil fuels, a long way. Um, I've quoted this a few times, there are currently 700 coal-fired power stations being built, right? There's um, uh, nuclear energy is being relaunched in Japan and other countries. So my view is we're a long way off from this and it's pie in the sky to think that uh, solar or wind can replace the kind of energy that is required for heavy industry to operate. It just can't do that. Um, and not, you know, none of them are carbon free. The only carbon free technology that we have is, is nuclear. Right. Okay. That's, that's uh, very useful. Thank you very much, Rob. Right. I'm going to cancel the spotlight and it's coming on to me. So we'll give uh, Rob a, a little chance to uh, catch his breath. And uh, so I could take the, take the discussion out to you now. So if, uh, for those who want a little reminder in zoom, there is a, an option it's down the bottom on the, um, uh, on desktops. It might be somewhere else on iPads and things like that the box called uh, participants if you click on that you'll see um, a list of people that are here and also you get the opportunity to raise hand this is a, a button that's there so please take advantage of that so i know you want to speak and also obviously uh, there's another button down the bottom there called somewhere there, there called chat and you can also uh, make contributions in there as well i'll try to keep an eye on that and and people's comments there as well right okay i'll start the discussion so i'm going to go to uh, paul reeves first paul hi there uh hello everyone thanks robert that was very interesting um it's a bit of a historical thing um i just wondered if all of these sort of financial tools um hedging and futures etc i i guess wondered if you can fill in a bit of a history of them have they basically always been there were they there sort of pre the uh, 73 oil crisis and I suppose coming on from that is, as someone is a sort of complete outsider, are these kind of valid mechanisms that you see as an essential thing in operating in the market? I can understand why people 
buy futures, et cetera, et cetera, from an individual kind of view? Or I wondered, is there any connection to the other theme that we often discuss in the economy forum about the sort of financialization of the world's economy? Are, are, are they just one of the things that are, is a feature to attempt to deal or hide other problems in a sort of basically a weak economy? Um, and, you know, basically do they have, are they fundamentally a thing that is part of the actual economy based around sort of the petroleum, et cetera, or are they something that is a, is it, it, are they a bad thing, I guess, basically, as far as a, a, a normally operating strong economy, I guess. Okay, brilliant. Uh, I'll, I'll take three or four, so I'll come to uh, Jenny Cunningham next. Hello, Jenny. Oops, sorry, I'll try it on muting you again. Can you unmute yourself, Jenny? Okay. Um, thanks, Rob. I've, I've got a very basic question, really. I wanted to ask a bit about OPEC and the relative balance of power within OPEC. I mean, obviously, in the past, it has been able to wield uh, a certain amount of control over its membership. So I just wondered about the balance of power within that. And a, a sort of another question, if I may, um, you, you didn't mention China in terms of the world economy. And obviously it, is, it has been a fairly critical player in terms of um, you know, the, the amount of energy um, it's basically using. So to just ask a little bit about that as well. Great, okay, thank you very much, uh, Sabina. I think people should just unmute themselves, actually. Okay. Now, I, I just wanted to confirm um, what was said about the um, alternative energy, because to be honest, we've got negative pricing in Germany on the energy market all the time through the wind turbines, because um, because of the system, because of the um, guaranteed contingencies, these companies are allowed to feed into the net. Um, there's basically just one choice, either to switch off the wind turbines if there's an overproduction, let's say in summer when we have wind and low energy use, or it is uh, selling um, the excess um, electricity which is being uh, generated um, through negative pricing. And it's, to me, it seems to me, um, you know, massive, these are massive costs. So, um, you know, the, the system you described, you know, the, the kind of storage costs for oil seem to me probably, I don't know what the costs are, maybe you have an idea, but what are the costs, let's say, per energy unit? Because it seems to me the alternative energies, even, you know, with the, you know, comparing, you know, the cost of, of overproduction seems to be massively higher. So uh, just to confirm the point that I don't think there is an alternative to oil. Great, okay, um, Mehdi. Can you unmute yourself? Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you, Robert. If I may, you're taking a leaf out of Jenny's book. I'll ask you two questions, please. Um, one with respect to the shell oil. How sustainable is the production of shell oil, especially in the United States, would be if this trend continues? Okay. And my second question, uh, Robert, is 
obviously everyone is um, praying for a V-shaped uh, uh, recovery. But if we're going to have a U-shaped, and if it's going to be an elongated U-shaped, uh, what would the impact on the oil industry? And at the back of that, how resilient is the, uh, is the industry? These countries, whether it's United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and other countries, they've been, they've been selling oils at approaching $100 uh, a few years ago. Therefore, they must have tremendous reserves. But how resilient is it? Because are they, are they crying wolf, in a sense, at the moment? Great, those are great questions. I'm going to take um, John Rowland and I'm going to let Rob uh, just answer a few of those and um, uh, then we'll, we'll come back out to the audience. So, um, John, can you unmute yourself? Right, hello. Uh, very quick question. Um, the, the trauma has been experienced by oil. Does that apply equally to gas or is gas somewhat more resilient given the, uh, the world's dependence on gas for its domestic energy? Uh, that's it. Brilliant, okay, nice and short. Okay, uh, Rob, I'm going to bring you back in. So, uh, oh, why does it unmute? Uh, can you unmute yourself? Doesn't seem to want to let me unmute anybody. I have a okay. go. <laughs> okay, um, just a few points. Um, just on China to start with. Uh, China is the world's largest consumer of uh, oil uh, next to the United States, uh, but it's a consumer. It's, it doesn't produce much oil. And the same could be said for countries like India, um, South Africa, um, and a number of other countries which just don't produce oil and they are um, subject to whatever the global price is. Um, they do have storage capacity, uh, but um, beside that, they still, are, uh, they, they still have to respond to the global oil price. I just want to touch on futures and options uh, trading. Um, I think this is very important. First of all, uh, there's been futures and options trading both in the United States and in uh, Western Europe uh, for 150 plus years. And what that is all about were merchants, traders, producers and consumers meeting together to use the market to protect themselves. So if you are an oil producer, your risk is that between the time that you um, drill for the oil out and you sell it to your customer and your customer pays for it, the price goes down. So you as a producer would be a forward seller on a futures exchange to protect yourself against a falling market. If you are China or South Africa, you are a consumer of oil. You don't produce any oil. So you, your risk is, is diametrically opposite to that of a producer, that the price potentially could go higher. So you would hedge by going long of the market, by buying forward to protect yourself against a rising price. And industry have done this for a very, very long period of time. Um, and um, in the last 20 years or so, 
what we have seen, and, and it started off with the financialization of the um, oil markets, where because it was such a liquid market, uh, lots of speculators got involved in the market. They could be hedge funds, they could be ETFs, they could be uh, sovereign wealth funds, they could be um, uh, commodity trading uh, companies or trading houses who speculate on the price. And I have to say that one of the things that has happened in the oil market um, in April was what I would call um, the hyper-financialization of the market, where the speculators started um, dominating a market um, and they really got very badly burnt because of this rolling of their positions that they had to do and the fact that they had to pay that contango price. Um, and, um, you know, I think industry does to some extent see them coming. Uh, but there are other elements, uh, other people involved in the market in this hyper-financialization process, and, and um, those really are high-frequency traders. High-frequency trading is where a, a computer makes an algorithmic decision about which way the market is going, and over the last five or ten years, maybe less than that, they have come to dominate the liquidity in the markets. So that's a big issue. But remember that the, these markets have been set up and are primarily used by industry to manage their risks. Um, the WTI contract specifically attracts um, the, the, the financial markets, while Brent in London will tend to, uh, to attract um, industry. Uh, there's a difference between uh, um, London and, and, and uh, New York in that the contract on um, the, the uh, WTI contract is what we call a physically settled contract. If you don't close your position out, you have to take physical delivery of oil. London is a cash settled contract. That means it's automatically closed out if you don't close it and you just pay or receive a, a difference in, in price. Talking about OPEC, going on to that question. Uh, so originally set up by six countries in 1960, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. Uh, four of the top six producers never went near OPEC. So we don't have uh, uh, China, US, Canada, and Russia involved in it at all. And uh, what's called OPEC plus, is another 11 producers of oil who have joined uh, at various dates since that time, including um, Indonesia, Libya, UAE, Algeria, Nigeria, Angola, uh, Equatorial Guinea and Congo, and those sort of countries have joined OPEC too. Remember what I said about the oil price, and it's not just the oil price that is important, it's what these countries have to produce oil and to sell it at that is, that, that is important. So if you take Iran, for example, their actual cost of production works out at $195 a barrel. Today it's trading at $42 a barrel. Algeria, $109. Uh, Venezuela, I, I hate to think what it is, but it's most probably in excess of $300. Nigeria closing in on 100. 
Saudi Arabia, 83, UAE, 70. So it goes on and on and on, Bahrain, 90. Um, so none of them are producing at a profit at the moment. They cannot meet their budgetary requirements. They cannot pay their debts. Um, so what has happened is there's been less and less investment in oil over the last 10 to 15 years as the banks are no longer interested in lending to people who can't pay them back. So unless it's a vanity project by a government like China or uh, uh, Venezuela or whoever, um, unfortunately, um, the banks, uh, the, you know, there is no way that these, uh, these, these funds can be repaid unless, of course, oil goes over $100 a barrel or so. Um, uh, Sabino's point about, um, about uh, wind and Germany is very, very true. Uh, Germany's in the market on a daily basis. Um, all the major producers, RWE, whoever it is, um, they are all um, effectively, um, when, when you know, the wind blows, they have to sell energy to Sweden or to uh, somebody else in, in the Connect, uh, uh, the Netherlands or whatever, and basically they have to give it away. And it's a very unproductive way of producing energy. Um, it's easy to switch off a wind farm. That's not a difficult problem. The problem comes when you're producing nuclear power or you're producing natural gas or oil. Here, it is almost impossible to close down uh, without incurring a massive cost, which is impossible to uh, recover. Um, shale oil is a, uh, to one of the questions, is a very dirty process. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, the tar sand projects in Canada, the shale oil projects in the United States have created uh, a situation where those countries are no longer dependent on OPEC for their oil. They produce more than they use and they export some, but, um, you know, there is just too much of this material around. Uh, they too have to make cuts uh, and some of that technology is ancient. And um, again, they can't find uh, any, um, any kind of uh, funding from banks. Um, gas, gas has been um, uh, operating very, at very, very low levels for a very long period of time. It is uh, used by um, many countries as an alternative force of energy, source of energy. Unfortunately, a lot of countries view that as, uh, as political risk because they have to deal with countries like Algeria and Qatar in particular. And so they're very nervous about where this, uh, and of course, Russia, uh, they're very nervous about long-term supplies. Um, and so um, despite the fact that there's a glut of material, it's trading at about uh, $2.80 per unit, which is a MMBTU um, at the moment, um, which is historically in the last 10 years, quite a high price. Um, and um, yeah, so that, there's the gas. Um, the recovery, I have no idea where we're going to on the recovery. Uh, I suspect given what's going on in the US at the moment that we're more likely to see a V-shaped recovery um, than, than a U-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery, but I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing. Great, okay. Now I'm just gonna throw in a couple of things. Uh, just uh, 
Roberta asked in the chat about Norway, and I'd just like to expand that. So obviously this is closer to home. I know the, the North Sea hasn't been a major producer for a while, but um, clear, clearly it can only produce profitably at much higher prices. So what, what are the, what's the future looking like for Norway and, and the future independent Scotland? And it's uh, oil, <laughs> the oil dividend. Um, so there's that. And then um, also, I, I, was, I was really fascinated by what you said about these, these actual prices of production and why, why people are producing oil at all. Uh, and also, I mean, we, we know from looking back at the, the history of Venezuela and the Chavez era that they were they had a lot of oil and therefore they could, the government could be relatively generous at a particular point in time and uh, sort of mask certain economic problems. But, and obviously that's not happening in Venezuela right now. But that must be an, uh, a, a real problem for lots of other regimes like Iran um, and you know, Libya is a mess and all that. But the, the, a lot of these countries are very, very dependent. Saudi Arabia as well, very, very dependent on having a lot of cash from oil to... Um, sort, of, sort of sustain the, the, the regimes in those countries. So what's going to happen there in terms of uh, international uh, relations and all that sort of stuff. So two from me, I'm now going to uh, unmute Daniel. Daniel, what's, what do you want to say? Uh, well, I've got two questions for Rob. Uh, I, mean, I, I should be clear that I do agree with what he was saying in terms of the main tendencies. But these are questions about what might be called the counter tendencies to what he's talking about. So, first of all, in relation to uh, oil being a practical and hydrocarbons more generally being practical energy sources, uh, I'm sure that's true. And in fact, I was amused to read recently that Germany, you know, with all of its hype about the energy transition and becoming, you know, uh, focusing on renewable energy, opening a, a coal-fired power station. So I think that really, in fact, endorses your point. But on the other hand, I'm, I am following this discussion of the, the green recovery, uh, and perhaps it is partly hype, but there does seem to be a concerted drive by policymakers to try to push people away from fossil fuels. So for example, to uh, allegedly not bail out too many airlines, uh, to uh, when you have scrap car scrappage schemes, uh, just to do it for electric cars rather than uh, diesel powered cars or oil cars. Although I appreciate that even electric powered cars might ultimately rely on a coal fired power station. But even then, there is a big push in the direction of moving people away from hydrocarbons. Also, talking about stranded assets. In other words, threatening people who invest in oil uh, or coal that their uh, assets might just become wasted because people will move in a different direction. Uh, and then the other question is about other lenders, because you talked about banks not lending to uh, oil companies. And I appreciate probably not anyone wants to lend to oil companies at the moment. But uh, if you go back a few months, what about other kinds of lenders? So, for example, asset managers, pension funds. As far as I can tell, some of them were quite active in lending to the oil sector, particularly shale oil companies. So if you could say something about that as well. well thank you very much, uh, Jagdish. Right. Oh, hi, Bob. Um, it's been 40 years since we last uh, met on the streets of East London. 
this, you haven't changed a bit. Um, got a very trivial question. Um, I'm just trying to imagine where all this oil and uh, gas is being stored because I know working in engineering generally, if you're working in just in time, you don't have large warehouses empty just waiting to store, you know, store access stock. Where do, where is in the last two months? Where is all this oil and gas and where are they? Where is it being stored? So I, I don't know, or is it just being burnt off? So that's my question. Brilliant. Thank you very much, uh, Noah. Uh, Hello, good evening. Thank you very much for your reflections. Really interesting, not least the economic um, analysis of the price of oil plummeting. Uh, just a quick one for me. We heard earlier reflecting on the um, 1973 oil crisis and how that led to the uh, creation of the G7. And I wondered sort of more broadly how you thought this oil crisis um, could impact geopolitical relations, at least for nations like China you're talking about who are dependent on oil rather than producing it themselves um, and also just a sort of broader look at intergovernmental organizations and the impact of any if any uh, of the oil crisis on them especially when many of them like the WHO um, have been criticized for their response to the um, broader coronavirus pandemic thank you brilliant thank you very much Noah uh, Phil Mullen oh sorry Hi. yeah go ahead uh, thanks, thanks, Rob, and thank you, Rob. Uh, very helpful uh, introduction. Um, just to add something to your point about, or the, your response to the question of um, financialization. Uh, very helpful what you said, explaining the historical, long historical um, uh, background of derivatives trading and even of speculators. Uh, can you just add a bit on your uh, use of the term hyper financialization because uh, and whether you'd agree with with one of the differences which I think is happening in the last sort of 20 years because they're right there's always been derivatives markets there's always been it's used by traders to manage their risk there's always been people speculating on commodity prices but what it seems to me has changed is that uh, the uh, these um, prices or what's happening in these markets is something which has been come much more mainstream within the financial institutions. It's not just hedge funds who are seeing they can make some money on it. It's the big pension funds, it's the insurance companies, it's the wealth funds. Uh, uh, and on the retail market, it is what you described the ETFs, the uh, exchange traded funds have become a, a huge thing. And it seems that it is the impact of that uh, allocation of funds in society and we know there's a huge amount of money out there but that allocation by institutions and by retail investors relatively more into commodities compared to equities and bond trading and so on uh, which seems to me was the factor which reinforced the exaggeration of the oil price changes earlier in the year so uh, would you share that as one of your um, uh, features of hyper financialization secondly um, in other forums, uh, economy forums, we've, we've looked at to what extent uh, the impact of the pandemic lockdowns has uh, changed things or more generally reinforced or brought things to the surface. So if I can just sort of suggest three things which I'd, I'd be interested in your comments on. Firstly, on the, on the supply side and uh, echoing what was being asked about uh, shale oil in America. Um, because to me, it does seem that the, the, what's happened over the last few months has, has emphasized just the um, fragility of the business models of those oil companies. I mean, we have anticipation of a whole uh, slew of 
producers in uh, America in the shale markets going bankrupt. Uh, 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 Chesapeake um, Energy, which is one of the pioneers, is supposedly on the, on the brink of bankruptcy at the moment. Um, and that whole business model of relying on debt in order to fund the, uh, the drilling of wells on the expectation that somehow there'll be enough funds generated from the oil before it runs out. As we know, these, these um, uh, fracking uh, wells have a, very short, uh, have a very short life compared to traditional wells. That market, that or rather that business model just doesn't seem to be working. And, and what we've seen in the last few months to me seems to more emphasize that. So don't you think there's a longer term problem for the, for the US uh, shale oil market? given that they've been increasing productivity, given they've been trying to work through this model to find a different one, they don't seem to have come up with it. Uh, second point, sorry, more quickly perhaps, uh, on the demand side seems to be what's, what's important over the next few years in that um, what we've seen with the, with the lockdown enforcement or the lockdown reductions on demand and therefore the impact on, on, on the pricing, isn't that a, a precursor to what we can expect to see with a much more protracted, in my view, uh, depression in the Western world, and even within China, the rate of uh, uh, the rate of growth uh, continuing to tail off, still positive, but compared to the what was happening in the in the previous 20 years, it seems that the pandemic lockdown to me has emphasised that there is a reduction in demand for fossil fuels, or rather, the rate of increase in demand for fossil fuels will be tailing off. Perhaps is a better way of putting it. And that's something which I think is, is a structural shift. And finally, um, uh, the other thing which seems to have been highlighted by uh, the experience of the last few months is the politicization of the fossil fuel market. And there I would uh, echo uh, comments that Rob, Rob, Rob Lyons made earlier, that Daniel's just made. It seems that it's not just about supply and demand, and it's not just about financialization of the markets. The markets have become more politicized, uh, both domestically in terms of the green agenda, uh, where you have uh, you know, major companies, you know, most of the big companies now putting forward demands that the government should do, should get, should get real on green, on carbon taxes, on, on, on uh, making real uh, emissions, zero emissions targets. That is a shift uh, which uh, has really consolidated link over, over the last few years and has been emphasized during the pandemic. Um, so isn't that the politicized effects of that is something which is going to change things structurally in the future, I would suggest. Right. Um, I'm going to uh, bring uh, Sally in, and then I'm going to give Robert another chance to to respond to uh, <laughs> a lot on the table. Uh, so, um, Sally, the floor is yours. Oh, I can't hear you. I've I've unmuted you as you unmuted yourself. Can you just unmute yourself? Sorry. Yes. Well done. Sorry about. Uh, that. Sorry. Yeah. Very confusing. Um, fascinating conversation. Uh, my questions seem a little bit um, born of ignorance, I suppose, um, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Um, so the, the first question is um, a little bit related to what Bill Mullen just said at the end, um, which is the, um, the demand for ethical investments on pe for pension funds and any investment fund now to be ethical and ethical means not oil and not gas. Um, so has, how much of an impact has that had? Um, and then it's absolutely fascinating, fascinating to hear the, that discussion about the 
um, price of oil and um, in, a, in effect a, the impact of, of negative pricing. But then um, given that the agenda is for, um, it's a green agenda, which is anti-oil, what does this then mean for all this surplus oil? Because you're saying it's too expensive to uh, close down production and yet there's nowhere to store it. So how, I'm just wondering, how, how do you dispose of it then? What do you do? Do you end up disposing of it? And does that, um, where does that play into the green agenda? That's it. Right. Okay. I mean, I, I'm having the same dilemma about storage myself because I see the pr the prices of oil have plummeted at the the pump, and uh, I was just like, if, if I could store like five tank worths of of fuel at the moment for the car, that would be I'd be so happy. Uh, <laughs> right. So apologies to James. I'll bring you back in uh, shortly. But Rob, do you want to respond to uh, the things that have been said so far? Oh. Okay. Uh, can you hear me? Good. Um, I'm going to go at this at, uh, at, uh, in a sort of roundabout way. It costs about $1 per barrel to store for a month, okay, in a land-based storage facility. Um, Cushing has an uh, equivalent of 76 million barrels uh, of storage. Uh, the United States Strategic Reserve Board has about 300 million barrels per uh, storage capability. The Chinese have half a billion barrels equivalent of storage. And every other country has storage facilities. You see them all over the place, the big white tanks where uh, oil, gas and distillates are kept. Um, and um, Crude oil is what we call dirty tanks, and the distillates are kept in clean tanks. So uh, it costs roughly about a dollar. Um, what we've seen since this crash has occurred and this massive quantity of oil that has been pumped out has also been put on board 700 ships, which are basically uh, filled up with oil and left outside certain harbors. Uh, you see them outside Singapore, in the roads outside Singapore. You see them in Southern Africa because Southern Africa is halfway between uh, Europe and, uh, and the oil source, so they can be delivered relatively quickly. Um, Japan, uh, the South China Sea, uh, anywhere where uh, pirates don't operate. Um, companies like um, Glencore, Trafigura, uh, Vital, Mercuria, uh, these are the big trading companies have hired these ships, uh, chartered these ships as we call it, for lengthy periods of time where they store materials. So there's plenty of storage capacity globally. Um, it, it, it was particularly the WTI contract in the United States that failed uh, to, to not enter into um, negative territory. So, um, okay, um, just to um, go back to a few other points. Um, yes, let's, let's talk about ethical investments. And we have seen uh, a number of companies uh, either uh, withdrawing uh, from buying shares in companies that produce coal, 
iron ore, um, uh, basically gas and 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 oil. Um, and in particular, the, 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 the ironic one is the Norwegian State Pension Fund, which um, its entire wealth comes from fossil fuel production, has withdrawn uh, from the coal market um, all of a sudden. Um, and companies are following, some companies are following this concept of ESG, environmental, social and governance policies, where they are talking about ethical investments. The interesting thing is, one, their places have been taken by other investors pretty rapidly. Uh, and I think that's very interesting because people recognize, investors recognize that um, uh, commodities in the future are going to be at a much higher price. Why? Well, the banks aren't lending to the commodity companies. The, the technology is is becoming aged and, and, and cor uh, corrupted. Uh, we are seeing um, fewer and fewer new uh, facilities come on stream. Um, and um, there's just going to be a, there's going to be inflation again um, as a result of all of this. And I think that commodity prices will rise as a consequence of this. And plenty of people have seen the opportunity to get involved in these markets. So if you look at, the major producers like uh, BHP Billiton, Rio Tinto, uh, Vale of Brazil, Pemex of Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. Their share prices are relatively okay. They have been underperforming, but they are, uh, that is because uh, we're in a low commodity cycle at the moment, but I think that will change. Um, uh, why are companies producing oil at all? I think it's got to do with um, most countries. Um, oil is produced by a state-owned enterprise uh, and um, it is seen as, as a strategic mineral. And as a consequence, uh, I think they will continue to do so. Uh, Venezuela um, cannot produce distillates at the moment. Uh, it can produce crude. In fact, it has the world's largest reserves of crude oil, but it is incapable of producing it. And in fact, they've just imported this week, five shiploads of tanker loads of oil from Iran um, uh, to, to fill the gap. Um, and um, for the last 20 years, um, they've charged no money for oil, for, uh, for petrol, for cars, uh, for the population of Venezuela. They've had to change that and that's led to street riots in Venezuela. Um, I wanted to go on really to Phil's points because I think that's they, they, and, and, and Daniel's points as well um, and talk about hyper-financialization. Um, I, I come out of a, a metal trading background um, and in, in that uh, I'd say over 50% of the uh, market is uh, um, is legitimate hedges using the market to manage risk. But that's um, Brent and, 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 and uh, the London Metal Exchange, for example. Uh, in lots of other markets like WTI, um, funds have really become um, the, the, the major users of those markets. And so we have seen um, in the last 10 to 15 years, um, this hyper-financialization, which is largely led 
not by the names that Phil mentioned, but I think the biggest one in them is the high frequency traders, uh, the algorithmic traders who uh, are a computer driven uh, um, uh, um, instruments which are um, uh, purely speculative in nature. Uh, hedge funds too, uh, sovereign wealth funds, ETF funds um, uh, are all very, very active on the market uh, and do sometimes um, provide a, a direction for that market. I would make the point though, and I, I have done this before in, a, in, in one of these sessions, is that Commodities are not driven by interest rates like uh, gold or currencies are. Um, they're driven by supply and demand. And um, that is, to me, where direction comes from. So a lot of, it doesn't matter where these markets um, are, uh, you know, people perceive whether there's going to be a shortage or a, or, or, or a glut of material and would price it accordingly obviously sometimes that goes wrong and and this is one such incident there have been a number of other incidents like this um uh, what we call either a black swan event like the one we've just seen or a, a fat tailed event uh, where the market moves completely out of kilter and it's driven by um events like uh covid or um you know um, other other uh, other people entering the market. So um, on the supply side, on the production side, I do agree very strongly with Phil. I think that technology uh, and business, um, you know, cheap money and uh, um, uh, very dirty methods of production are, are unsustainable. Um, and I don't mean that in an environmental sense. I, I mean it in a uh, political in an economic sense, and I think that we will see shut-ins uh, that will will occur in the oil industry, and of course that will lead to higher prices eventually. On the demand side, um, yes, uh, it's going to take. Uh, you know, we talked about you know what the shape of the recovery is going to be like. I, I have no idea, but one thing I do know is that. Um, you know, we've already seen, if you look at uh, capacity utilization in China, uh, that's at the moment at around 70 to 75% of what it was pre-COVID uh, and is rising pretty rapidly. Um, we are going to see a recovery in uh, the use of commodities, uh, but perhaps not quite at the pace that it has done in the past. So what we're likely to see um, is and, and, you know, the one example I will always use is aviation gas. Um, aviation gas fell off a cliff in April. Um, it, we barely see a plane in the sky even now. Um, and it's likely that it's going to take some considerable time for the distillate market to, uh, you know, reestablish itself. So that recovery will take time. Um, the politicization of the fossil fuel industry um, is uh, an issue and um, we do see lots of companies now um, falling over themselves to distance themselves from investing in these sectors. Um, and, and, and sort of, um, I, I'm not even sure they're responding necessarily to their own shareholders views. I think they're responding to a wider political 
uh, movement uh, on on ethical investment and on um, environmental issues. Um, I don't see that going that that's going to change the market that dramatically. Um, as I said, uh, people will reinvest in uh, in other areas. Um, just in time, Jagdish, good to see you as well. I haven't seen you for 40 years. <laughs> you still look exactly the same. Um, uh, just in time procurement, um, I think, is dead in the water. Um, I think that um, uh, cheap money uh, at the moment allows people to store uh, material on site. I think the, um, there has been a, a break in the chain that we've seen in, um, in, in just-in-time production. Uh, and I think, um, you know, uh, people will look closer to home to fulfill um, uh, uh, production from countries which they, they perceive as, as politically dangerous or difficult, where the supply chain could be disrupted. Um, and I, I, I think, issues of nationalism and, and other issues of state intervention in procurement lines will lead to uh, people looking closer to home. Uh, also to soak up unemployment, I think that's likely to happen as well. But that's a, a, an issue for debate. Okay, great. Uh, that, that's in itself is a big, a big statement. So uh, I'll mute Rob again and James Woodhausen. Hello, James. Oh, sorry. I think we've we've, we've cross muted. Uh, so yes, James, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah. Good. Um, well, Rob, I don't think anybody can rival you uh, with your knowledge of uh, not just W-shaped recoveries. That's a new one on me. But um, fat tails, distillates, contango. Uh, it takes two to contango, I suppose. Um, so I think that's all very good. And I think in any sector, especially uh, energy and especially oil, which is, you know, referred to as black, gold and shit in equal measure, um, understanding the use value of what's going on and the storage tanks and the tankers and all the rest, very important. Uh, at the same time, I'm sure you'd agree, uh, and I think Phil and Daniel reinforced, but the financialization side, which you pointed to, uh, draws our attention and speculation draws our attention to the exchange value side of the industry. And I was um, delighted to hear you point out that negative prices and all the rest are not peculiar to this use value, that they are an exchange value phenomenon, if you like, that happens independently of particular industries. I just want to say, one theme, if I may, um, Rob, the chairman, and that is that, and I'm sure Rob, the speaker, wouldn't disagree, that uh, because of the way oil works, it's very easy to be absorbed by the oil market, by prices, by supplies and the 100 million barrels a day, and so on. And uh, it's very easy also to be uh absorbed in um the vagaries of of the market and of speculation and which does play a role but i think it's important that we stand back from that and recognize that we're dealing with political economy not just supply and demand 
And that's true in two senses, uh, folks. First of all, uh, labor is involved in extracting oil. And if you look at the employment of two to three million people in American unconventional shale, uh, oil and gas plays, and you look at the unemployment situation in America today, then the loss of two million jobs in the very vulnerable shale industry, which is what it could come to in the southern United States, is a very political and important phenomenon at this moment in the evolution of the United States. The uh, transport, which is responsible for 57% of world oil demand, is a major factor in the political economy of the United States. And shale oil, uh, uh, I wouldn't quite describe it as uh, um, self-sufficiency in oil and gas. We can have a beer about that, uh, Bob, but uh, it's certainly not energy independence. But shale oil and gas is very important to the American revival, to American low prices of uh oil for manufacturing and so on so you know we're really talking about a strategic industry that has a strong political role in all sorts of ways uh in america jobs is just the half of it you only have to look at shell in nigeria to recognize the labor side political side or deep water horizon uh of uh of the oil industry the second thing in which the political economy is important is that we have to recognize that technological change in the oil industry is generally neglected by our oil market freaks. And they're not very much concerned with the use of IT in horizontal drilling and, uh, or what is called fracking in the United States. And they're not at all concerned about the fact there's not only a decline in demand for oil because of the collapse of transport, especially as Rob points out, aviation, uh, kerosene. There's a collapse of investment in oil, which has been going on really uh, since 2014. And finally, there's a collapse in R&D around oil and gas. It never amounted to anything compared with what they're pouring into efficiency, to car engines, uh, and to renewables in terms of R&D. But, and it certainly doesn't amount to anything in terms of venture capital. Venture capital is just not interested in oil and gas. So we're neither having the investment nor the technological advance that we could be having because it's the Cinderella of R&D, oil and gas, as you might uh, uh, guess. So just to conclude, um, we need to remember these things so we don't get too absorbed by the peculiarities of the uh, industry. And I think the thing to remember is that uh, in terms of the politics of demand, I think uh, there will be a decline in demand for oil-based transportation in the West, but that will be more to do with the decline in the demand for mobility and government crackdowns on mobility and lifestyle uh, distaste for uh, mobility. I think if you go to the East, the demand for petrol-based and diesel-based gas and diesel-based transport is going to be unremitting. There's going to be no close-down in demand uh, there. They're only just beginning the process of car ownership uh, and of all the rest of it. So I think one must distinguish, as we have in other sessions uh, of the Academy, between developments in the East 
uh, and the West. You will not get electric cars filling the gap that the distaste for oil uh, and fossil fuels makes in conventional cars. That's one thing to remember. You will get a decline in mobility. You may get a decline in petrol cars, uh, sales and all the rest of it in the West, but electric cars will not fill that gap. That's why you'll get a decline in mobility. Very important that we uphold the merit of oil uh, as a means of transportation and therefore fundamental to liberty, not just in America, but for everybody who wants to get out of their home. Thank you, James. Um, a, a few points of my own. Uh, on the Labour point, when I was trying to select a few songs to play while we were waiting to get started, um, I, I looked for songs on Spotify related to oil, and they're almost all country and Western songs, so which is, suggests that's where the Labour comes from. Um, I eventually chose um, There's Only So Much Oil in the Ground by Tower of Power, which is an energy crisis classic from the early 70s. Um, the, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do worry about this this lack of investment and that uh, there could be a sort of a gap if, if that investment uh, uh, fall continues that, you know, at some point people are not going to, all that old kit starts to, grind to a halt so the shale oil um doesn't uh runs out or it stops being produced then um the, 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 there there is a potential for a, a gap so uh, in terms of political um in the west political decision making and policy making does that mean that uh, that in itself is a driver for attempts to produce more renewables or to shift to electric uh, also, with the point you made about supply chains, is that the one thing about renewables is your wind and solar and whatever is local. There is no there is no big supply chain there. So would that be an incentive to try and push things further on um, electric vehicles and things like that as well? Um, right. I've got Paul Reeves coming in. Um, just to say, um, anybody who wants to come back, please do uh, for the next five five or ten minutes and then I'll bring Robin at the end to sort of uh, sum up. So, Paul. Hi, um, yeah, as Rob's here, I thought I'd get a bit of information to support my absolutely massive uh, share portfolio that I need to uh, obviously readjust. So three small questions. One is petroleum. In it, I, I'm interested to know, petroleum is also a feedstock into industry. I can think of plastic. I'm sure there's several others. So just a quick question is what proportion of the oil and gas market is actually used as industrial sort of feedstocks, um, possibly tied into the fact that plastic is clearly unfashionable. But I'd be interested to just know what the proportion of the market is. Um, I just wondered, it occurred to me that investors are possibly looking around for other areas to invest in. So given Robert was involved in metals, I wondered is the, the possibility that um, investors may be now looking more even to, to things like cobalt, rare earth metals, basically feedstocks into batteries. It may be there could even potentially be a knock on to that, to actually increasing R&D in battery production, uh, which could uh, reduce the uh, price and cost of batteries. And I'm half serious. Is something like carbon sequestration actually now more likely to come about given that uh, the overlap between i assume between the the uh, 
the technologies that producers use. I know it's it, it's been talked about. It's 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 um, there've been various pilot product projects which have been walked around. I just wondered if there is a possibility, a small possibility, that maybe that is a is an industry that could uh, possibly now not be its, its time, but uh, there could be more interest in it. Okay. Uh, we don't seem to have a, a massive queue of people to, to, to speak, which is absolutely fine. So um, I'll bring Robin to uh, to try and get through all of that lot um, and uh, sum up the, the conversation. So uh, over to you, Rob. Okay. Uh, can you hear me? Yes? Good. Okay. So um, I'm taking on board everything James uh, said, I think he's absolutely right that, you know, one has to look at this as a um, uh, political um, economic situation and we need to know whether something has dramatically changed that will affect the world economy. Um, I, I, I think something has uh, broken in, uh, in, in a lot of ways um, over the last few months. And it's not just as a result of um, of of um, of COVID, I think, uh, although that has exacerbated many of the frailties in the world economy, and I think, um, in particular, perhaps the oil market is one such example. Um, when is peak coal? Peak coal is two thousand and twenty-seven. Okay, uh, peak oil is most probably twenty thirty-two or thirty-three. So we're a long way off from um, peak usage in many of these, um, these commodities. Um, and I, I think there's plenty of upside to come. Um, and given the frailties that we've talked about, I think that um, prices will recover fairly dramatically um, over time. And it's, I, I, I'm loath to, uh, I'm, I'm not regulated by the, uh, Financial Conduct Authority to give investment advice, but um, uh, I, I, I do make you know the point about um, one of the things that has occurred and why the American stock market is so strong at the moment, given what's going on. It's a bit of an irony, isn't it, that the stock market is at its I think yesterday hit its high or the day before hit its high point uh, for the year. Now, why is that? That's because people have moved their investments away from certain sectors into high-yielding stocks, uh, such as technology, pharmaceuticals, and others. And they've moved away from um, investing in uh, companies that don't provide dividends or who, who've, uh, who've screwed up over the last year or two. Um, so I, I think that's can very easily happen in the commodity markets. Um, as you get a shortage of commodities, money will flow back into it. And it doesn't matter um, you know, whether a hedge fund or the uh, Strategic Reserve Board or the uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund of a country is involved in it, um, other, other investors will be found and will be investing in it. Um, I, I'm, Loath to talk about individual um, commodities, um, uh, but uh, let's take carbon because I think, uh, funnily enough, Rob, I think carbon is a very interesting topic for a discussion in the future. Because there was a when the crash happened of two, in two thousand and eight, um, most companies 
found that they had a surfeit of credits. So the whole point of um, the whole uh, basis of um, the uh, ETF, uh, e e um, European trading system completely failed, right? Because there was this massive excess, they basically reverted to no value whatsoever. And we've just seen exactly the same thing happening again. Prior to the crash, with, to this period that we're in at the moment, everybody thought that carbon credits was a great investment um, because everybody was, had environmental issues on the tip of their tongue. And massive amounts of money went into uh, purchasing carbon credits. And so they went up to about 30 euros per tonne of carbon. Right, well, the crash happens, industry comes to a halt, nobody's producing any carbon, we've got clear skies outside, uh, there's, you know, the, the environment has completely changed, and once again, the carbon, uh, uh, carbon um, uh, trading system has failed. So it's, nobody's learned from these issues, and it's purely a speculative bubble that pushed these things in, and a sort of moralistic um, uh, bubble that has pushed these markets up. Um, and yeah, I, I've got every interest, every, all of us do, in a clean environment. We don't want to see a, um, um, a messed up environment, but you, know, you do need to choose your investments very, very carefully. Uh, cobalt. Um, um, mentioned earlier, um, people are very nervous about the fact that it comes from one source, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and um, you know where there's uh, the, you know the, the, the very questionable methods of production, and all the major battery manufacturers, whether it's BASF in Europe or or the Chinese or um, the Germans. Um, are all looking at reducing their exposure to carbon and increasing their exposure to nickel in electric vehicle batteries and, of course, lithium to a lesser extent. So, um, yeah, carbon is a, is a ma major subject. Um, I think electric vehicles is a major subject. It's a very interesting topic because I think it does expose, and I think James brought this out very clearly, that we're a long, long way off from um, electric vehicles replacing uh, um, carbon uh, uh, fossil fuel vehicles. Um, I just wanted to end on, I mean, I don't know whether you want to ask questions, further questions or... No, no, sorry, I, was, I thought you were winding up there, sorry. Okay. Um, um, just trying to think if I've left anything out. I just wanted to make a point really about, um, you know, where, what, just round up some of the points that I have made. I think that um, uh, there will be uh, significant closures uh, in, in oil producing nations. I think, if I think about it, Venezuela and Iran are very close to uh, collapse. There are other economies where uh, oil production is, is very, very weak. Uh, and, is, um, uh, and, and I think that's particularly true of some of the South American countries and, uh, and the, uh, uh, the, the Middle Eastern countries where uh, a lot of this oil production is pegged to the US dollar 
and uh, there is very little chance that they will be producing anytime soon at a profit. So I think closures will occur. I think there will be a degradation of the uh, technology that is being used and the uh, existing uh, existing um, uh, fleet of, 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 of pr producing wells. I think bank lending is a very serious issue. Um, it, just to make a point about bank lending at the moment, it's leading to something uh, that we're seeing um, uh, called a super contango. A super contango. A super contango is where the cash price and the, the forward price goes out of kilter with this cost of storage and insurance and freight. So you, the, the difference between today's price and a future date is normally the storage um, cost and the transportation cost and the insurance cost. Because banks are pulling out of the market, that means that there are no market makers who are making markets in forward prices at or uh, around the contango price, the natural contango price. So what is happening is that that price is climbing constantly and it's creating what's called a super contango. We're seeing super contangos for the first time ever in uh, commodities like uh, aluminium and to a lesser extent oil and gas where the forward price is completely out of um, alignment. Um, there are other elements that I find fascinating about this uh, is that for the last 40 years, the way in which uh, uh, pricing has been um, identified in option trading has been through um, a model called the Black-Scholes model, which is two um, Nobel Prize winning mathematicians developed this model in the 1980s. Well, one of the things they forgot to do was to work out what do you do when they're negative pricing? How can you, how can you price a derivative when the price is below uh, zero? And um, I, I see banks and uh, clearinghouses and, and exchanges grappling with that issue at the moment. And what are they doing? They're looking at a, a French uh, mathematician from the 1930s, Bachelier, who developed a particular model and they're now scrambling to change their models to take into account the possibility of negative pricing. So things are going on which we've never seen before. Um, and I think bank lending uh, in particular is uh, a real problem at the moment. We've seen it literally uh, come to a grinding halt. Um, despite the fact that the Fed and the Bank of England and the European Bank have pumped in massive liquidity and provided that liquidity to the banks to lend out to industry, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. They're not doing it because the returns that they're getting on it are zero and the chances are that the investments will go sour. So bank lending is drying up. We're seeing a rise in nationalism and um, the uh, rise of, of, of trade wars, particularly, you, you know, we can, we can pick out China, but, you know, um, almost every country uh, sending aluminium to the United States has a 25% uh, duty applied to it. And there are lots of commodities where that is the case. 
One of the consequences of all of this will be the reappearance uh, of inflation, in my view. And again, when that happens, commodity investment will rise um, and we will see a much more um, investment going into to this. I think the other issue I've talked about is I do think, I may be wrong on this and it is a, a topic for discussion, the issue of supply chains uh, and just-in-time uh, supply chains is one which I think is up for grabs at the moment and I think that is a real um, game changer for a lot of, a lot of com com companies. Thank you. Great, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'm just going to unmute everybody. Can we give Rob a round of applause, please? Uh, hello, yes. So, um, I've, I've unmuted you all again, sorry. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much, Rob. Fascinating stuff um, and uh, lots to digest there. Uh, I would like to buy you a pint. I can't. But if you would, if any of you here would like to buy the Academy of Ideas a pint, go to uh, academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Uh, our next discussion is probably going to be in early July uh, when we'll be uh, having a bit of a double header on Italy and South Africa. So I hope you can join us for that. I think there's, there's quite a lot in both of those countries uh, that's worth talking about. Uh, and then uh, on the 7th of July, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a discussion on innovation, which is around Matt Ridley's new book, um, uh, How Innovation Works. Matt will be introducing that himself. Um, that looks, uh, since innovation has been a major issue at the Economy Forum uh, for quite a long time now, uh, it'll be interesting to see what he has to say about that and how uh, his theories about innovation uh, uh, work when they hit the real world of the economy. So it'll be fascinating to, 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 to see all that. So thank you all very much for coming along and I uh, hope you Before you go, I'd like to ask you to think about making a donation to the Academy of Ideas. We've not been furloughed and we haven't stopped. In fact, with salons and forums and public meetings online, we're busier than ever and delighted to be. But the current lockdown has almost completely stopped our income. So if you're a fan of what we do, we're counting on your support. Click the link below this podcast to donate what you can. And stay tuned for more debate and discussion from the Academy of Ideas wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.